Well, good morning, Embassy Church. It is good to be back. I am really thrilled to see so many people. I don't know. What a blessing. I was telling my wife, it's been, I think, six and a half months since we've been here. Uh, and to see so many new faces is a true blessing. And so let me uh, jump right in and pray for us this morning. And then we are going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. The title of today's sermon is The Supper in the Story. And we're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would today illumine the eyes of our hearts that we might behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to live more and more into the divine calling that you have for those who bear your image. And Lord, if we're going to do that, we need you to move into work. And so we pray that you would do this for us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, forgive me if I bump my head on this mic. It's like right here. So, hey, I want to start by asking you guys a question. So have you ever tried to watch a movie? And I mean a, a good movie with a solid, important plot line. And have you ever tried to watch a movie like that starting two-thirds of the way into the movie? Now, the odds are, if you do that, you're going to have a very hard time understanding that last third of the movie that you're actually trying to watch. And if you do understand a little bit of what's going on, you are going to miss out on a ton of important stuff. You're going to miss out on the fullness of that last third of the movie because you've missed what comes before it. And as I was thinking about starting this series on the Lord's Supper, that's kind of what it's like for us to think about the Lord's Supper apart from the entire storyline of the Bible. It's like trying to jump into a really good movie with a really good plot and only watch the last third of it. And so that brings us to our big idea for today. And our big idea is very simple today. The big idea today is this. The Lord's Supper is a part of the greater biblical storyline that's pretty simple right pretty straightforward but so easy to miss the point the lord's supper is a part of the greater biblical storyline now this means for us that the story leading up to the lord's supper the, the bible storyline leading up to that point when we first see the lord's supper instituted needs to be of absolute importance to us that we need to consume our minds with the storyline of the Bible far more than speculative suggestions about how Jesus may or may not actually be physically present in the bread or in the cup. Not that those are unfruitful things to think about, but that what we need to do is begin with the storyline of the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I don't think we have the Black Pew Bibles, do we? If you did, it would be page 957, so yeah. Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 14. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now we said just a minute ago that our big idea is that the Lord's Supper is a part of this greater biblical storyline. And so that means we're going to turn now for the first part of our sermon to that storyline. We want to think a little bit of the biblical story leading up to what we see instituted and known as the Lord's Supper. So this is going to be a little bit of review, but it'll be good to orient ourselves as we begin this series on the Lord's Supper. So we know this. In the beginning, God creates the world and he creates everything in the world. We read about this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And then God creates humanity in his own image. And God creates humanity in order that they might mediate his glory and spread his divine rule throughout all of creation. It was God's gift and calling to humanity that they would be the vehicle by which God's glory and divine rule would spread throughout the entire world. Now, the next part I think we all know far too well. Adam and Eve chose to embrace their own glory rather than God's glory. And they chose to embrace the rule of the serpent rather than the rule of God. And this threw a wrench in everything. But from that point on, from Genesis 3 onward, the focus of the biblical storyline is consumed with God's plan and activity to reestablish the global spread of his glory and divine rule through humanity. See, this has always been God's intention, that humans that mankind would mediate God's glory and (coughs) excuse me would spread God's divine rule throughout all of creation now as we continue Genesis chapter 12 you remember what happens here God calls a guy by the name of Abraham and God establishes a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants through which God intends to re-establish this role of humanity to mediate his glory and to spread his divine rule throughout all creation. Listen to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. However, God is going to make it clear to Abraham that it's not going to be just straight, smooth sailing from that point on. So in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, we hear this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And yet, this 400 years of affliction will not, it cannot thwart God's plan to reestablish his purposes for the earth through humanity. Genesis 17, 4 through 6. God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. There are to be kings, those who rule, who come from Abraham. Now, this is what that means. This is what we're hearing through this covenant with Abraham. That through Abraham and his descendants, God intends to reestablish humanity in the role of exercising this kingly dominion over the earth and spreading God's divine role or rule and mediating God's divine glory. The story continues, okay? And, and what we hear is that there is Joseph. Joseph is the great, great grandson of Abraham. And you remember what happens with Joseph? Through Joseph, Abraham's family now comes to dwell in the land of Egypt. And it's at this point that God really begins to make good on his promises to Abraham. Listen to what we read in Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God begins to make good on his promise to multiply Abraham's descendants into a great and mighty nation. But there's a problem. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, because of the increase of Abraham's descendants, because of the increase of Israel, he gets scared. And so he decides, because he's worried that Israel now, with all of their numbers, could rise up and threaten his kingdom, threaten his power. And so what does he do? He enslaves them. He subjects them. And the 400 years of affliction that God foretold begin right now. And it's this 400 years of affliction in the land of Egypt, the bondage that Israel finds themselves in, that sets the stage, that sets the table for what becomes the defining and most important event in the entire Old Testament history, the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. Now, in their affliction, the Israelites call out to God and God hears their cries. So God raises up his servant Moses to lead his people out of the affliction in order that he might then deliver them into freedom and into the land that he promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so you remember, God pours out the ten plagues onto Egypt, onto the land, culminating in that tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. And through this, God delivers his people in this event known as the Exodus. Now, this event was so central to the life of God's people Israel that he commanded them to re-experience and to remember this event every year as they celebrated the festival of Passover. And as the story unfolds, specifically here in the Exodus story, it is very clear that God delivers his people, but he delivers his people for a purpose. He delivers them so that they would be freed up outside of the bondage of Israel or of Egypt and Pharaoh, that they might actually live as God has created humanity to live. Listen to what we hear in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, God says to his people, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Now that phrase, a kingdom of priests, is understood by Peter in the New Testament to mean a royal priesthood. King priests who are meant to spread God's divine rule and glory throughout the land. So God delivers his people in the Exodus so that they can live as God has created humanity to live. As those who exercise kingly dominion over his creation and spread his divine rule and glory throughout all of creation. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is going to tap into this Exodus story in an effort to try to put an end to idolatry and immorality within the church at Corinth. Now, if you just read through 1 Corinthians 10, and even if you back up a couple chapters, what you're going to see is that Paul is dealing with immorality and idolatry within the church. And as Paul tries to put an end to this immorality and idolatry, he taps into the story of the Exodus. We have to ask ourselves, why? And the answer is this. Paul understands the story of Israel and the Exodus to be the story of the church. Paul understands the story of Israel and the Exodus to be the story of the church. And this brings us to our next point. The church is the people of the true Exodus. Followers of Jesus, those who are a part of the church, we are the people, Paul says, of the true Exodus. You see, the church is made up of those who have been delivered from bondage, are commissioned to spread God's glory and divine rule throughout the land. We are those who are being led by God in a journey to the land that he has promised as an inheritance to Abraham and to all of those who are his true descendants through their faith in Jesus. Now, as we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes it clear that he understands the community of Jesus' followers, the churches, to be those who have been delivered in a true exodus, and I think that he does that in two ways. First, Paul appeals to the exodus event itself to combat idolatry in the church. Next, number two, he explains the exodus through the language of the church, and we'll see what that means in just a minute. But one, Paul appeals to the exodus from Egypt as instructive to and normative for the church as he addresses their idolatry and immorality. And so in verses 1 through 5, Paul appeals to this Exodus story. And then in verse 6, Paul says this, Now these things took place as examples that we might not desire evil as they did. So because the believers in Corinth and all Christians have also undergone an exodus. The story of the exodus from Egypt has binding moral implications for their life. Now, the second way that Paul goes about this is by explaining the exodus from Egypt through the language and reality of the life and experience of the church. And by doing this, Paul makes it clear that he views Christians as having undergone an exodus. So what we're going to see here is that there are these four aspects of the Exodus that Paul is going to tap into and talk about, but he's going to talk about them in a way that utilizes the imagery, language, and experience of the life of the church. Now, the first, the first way that Paul does this is probably the one that's the hardest for us to see right on the surface. Paul talks about a cloud. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. 
Guys, remember the cloud. There was this pillar of, or cloud of smoke that led the people of Israel by day, and by night it turned into a pillar of fire, and it led God's people, and it was the manifest presence of God with his people. The presence of God leading his people and dwelling among his people. Now, Christians likewise are led by God and we experience his manifest presence among us through the abiding and indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. The next thing that Paul is going to do is he's going to talk about a baptism. Look again at verse 2. Paul says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul sees in the crossing of the Red Sea a type of baptism. Once the Israelites cross the sea, their identity is no longer as slaves of Pharaoh, but as a God's treasured possession. In the crossing of the Red Sea, God leads his people through the waters of his judgment into new life so that they will now be able to live as those who spread his divine rule and glory throughout the land. This is why. When God gives the Ten Commandments to his people, which remember, the Ten Commandments were the very heart of what God's rule, his divine rule, should look like in the midst of his people. So when God gives the Ten Commandments, he begins by saying this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In other words, what God does is he says, listen, I have delivered you from Egypt, from slavery, so that now you will be able to live by these Ten Commandments as those who are spreading my divine, holy, and good rule throughout the land. The Israelites were brought through the waters of the Red Sea to spread God's divine rule and glory throughout the land. Now in baptism, Christians have also passed through the waters of God's judgment into new life in order that we might live as those who can spread God's divine rule and glory. Our identity is no longer as slaves to sin, but as freed followers of Jesus who live to spread God's divine rule. This is why Jesus tells us that we should pray this, your kingdom come and your will be done. Now, the final two aspects of the exodus that Paul is going to tap into using the language of the church life is this spiritual food and spiritual drink. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Once God delivers his people from bondage, he graciously sustains their life by feeding them with what Paul calls spiritual food and spiritual drink. Now, of course, Paul is referring to the manna that came from heaven and the water that flowed out of the rock to sustain the life of his people in their wilderness wanderings. God provides life to his people, Israel, from the heavenly realm. That's what Paul means when he calls it spiritual food and spiritual drink. Because in this world... When the dew dries up from the ground, I don't know, maybe you guys have seen it. I've never seen it. I've never seen the dew dry up and there's just like breakfast bread right there on the ground. That doesn't happen in this world. That comes from the heavenly realm, Paul says. That is spiritual food that God sent to his people from the realm of heaven. In this world, water, water does not flow from a rock because I tell it to 
or because I smack it with a stick. That is water that comes from the heavenly realm where God is. This is why Paul calls it spiritual drink. Now, as Christians, we are likewise nourished with a food that comes from the heavenly realm. We partake of the spiritual food of the body of Christ himself. This is a nourishment that comes from heaven where Christ is seated at God's right hand. We are nourished with a drink that comes from the heavenly realm. We partake of the spiritual drink of the blood of Christ. This is a life-giving drink that does not come from this realm, but the heavenly realm where Jesus reigns in power. Regular bread, grape juice, or wine cannot do this. This is spiritual food and spiritual drink. This is God's gift and provision for his people, and it is heavenly in nature. So, as we think about what we see there in these first six verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it seems very clear that Paul understands the followers of Jesus, the church, as those who have experienced the great exodus, which moves us to the next point as we continue in the story. Our next point is this. Jesus is enthroned as the human king-priest over creation. Jesus is enthroned as the human king-priest over all creation. You see, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus was enthroned not merely as the divine king, but as the human king over God's creation who is spreading God's divine rule and mediating God's divine glory. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 picks up on this. He quotes Psalm 8, speaking of humanity, and he says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now this is what we hear. This is the heavenly calling of humanity. The reason that humanity gets to wear the crown of glory and honor is because God has created humanity to serve as royalty that would then mediate his glory and spread his divine rule throughout the world. But as the author of Hebrews says, there's a problem. He finishes in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 2 and says this, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Sin has caused a problem. Humanity has forfeited and turned away from our divine calling to spread God's glory throughout the entire world. But the author of Hebrews says this, but we do see something. Because if we just left it right there where that verse in Hebrews leaves it off, if we left it right there, it's hopeless. Humanity was created for great things but screwed it all up. But the author of Hebrews says, but we do see something. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, through his suffering and death, which is what, remember, the Lord's Supper points to, the suffering and death of Jesus. Through his suffering and death, Jesus is crowned, as God's king over all creation. 
In Jesus, then, we see God's purpose for humanity fulfilled. In Jesus, we see the perfect king spreading the divine rule of God throughout all creation. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the perfect priest of God mediating God's divine glory throughout all of God's creation. But we must also remember that the author of Hebrews says, By the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus came and he humbled himself and he partook in our broken humanity in order that we might in turn partake in his new risen and reigning humanity. Which brings us to our final point. Those who partake in the Lord's Supper participate in the risen, ascended, and reigning life of Jesus. Those who participate in the Lord's Supper participate in the risen, ascended, and reigning life of Jesus. In our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, we hear this. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so as those who partake in the Lord's Supper... We participate in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And remember, it was through the death of Jesus, broken body, shed blood, that Jesus was enthroned as the one who has fulfilled humanity's calling as the great priest king spreading God's rule and glory throughout all creation. This means... To partake in the spiritual food and drink of the Lord's Supper is to be nourished by the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus who reigns from heaven. And it is to be nourished by this Jesus in order that we can live more and more into the divine calling of humanity to spread God's rule and glory throughout all of God's creation. To partake in the Lord's Supper then is to be identified as the people of this new and greater exodus. To be a part of the new humanity who in Jesus have been delivered from our bondage to sin and Satan and to live as humanity was actually created to live. Because the church is the people of the new exodus, therefore, it should not surprise us that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he does so during the celebration of the Passover meal. His people are the people of the new and greater exodus, which has ushered in a new and greater covenant in which we are nourished by the spiritual food of the body and blood of him who wears humanity's crown of glory and honor and is spreading God's divine rule and glory throughout the entire created order. It is this spiritual food which we see weekly in the Lord's Supper that empowers us as God's people to live more and more as God created us to live. The Lord's Supper, therefore, needs to be understood as being a part of the greater storyline of the Bible, 
A story that is fulfilled in every way in and through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion we see that it's the Lord's Supper along with baptism and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that identifies us, the church, as the people of the new exodus who have been delivered from our bondage to sin and Satan and who are sustained by the very life of our King Jesus that we might live to spread God's glory and divine rule throughout all of creation. We'll close with this. This is why Jesus tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that though you had bestowed upon humanity such an amazing divine calling that we would bear your image, that we were to be crowned with glory and honor, and yet we turned away. We forsook your glory and we traded it, Lord, for something that was worthless, that brought death and not life. And yet you sent your son who came and partook of our humanity that we might partake of his risen and ascended life that we might be able lord through him has who has fulfilled everything that we were supposed to be that we might be able to live more and more into our calling and ultimately be delivered fully into it when the lord returns in glory god i pray that you would help us to live as those who love your glory and who love your divine rule, and who make much of King Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.